Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. 20 minutes that simplifies the complex job of managing and leading people and inspires you to take action on what you probably already know to build and sustain a smart and healthy business. Here's your host, Ed Epley, to introduce this week's guest and business leader. Welcome to the Ed Epley Experience. This podcast is designed to simplify the complex job of managing and leading people. And our goal on this podcast, as everyone, is to share with you at least one proven business practice that will help you build a more sustainable and profitable and purpose-driven company. I just got done telling our guests that this is fulfilling a bucket list for yours truly today because as a result of him joining me, I get to talk to somebody who's been very instrumental in my development, my growth, as well as been a wonderful friend and a, and a great client as well. So welcome, Mr. Alan Crooks, formerly of BMW Financial Services, but still living down under near uh, Melbourne, Australia. So Alan, welcome. Thanks, Ed, and, and great to join you. And uh, as you mentioned, we have a long history together and, and a lot of successes over the, the period of time. So it's, it's good to talk to you. Well, thank you. I laugh and people will, uh, I'm going to try to give them some context about our uh, relationship the first time I met Alan was in South Africa, at least to my recollection, Alan. It was at that game preserve north of Johannesburg. And uh, we had about 25 or 30 managers who we were, you were kind enough to entrust me to teach them some professional management. And as I recall, Alan sat in the back of the room audience. He, he sat back there and as is his style, he didn't say very much, if anything, for the first day and until we got, you know, he kicked it off. But other than that, he really didn't say anything till the end of the day. He wanted to know who stood out in terms of their talent to me and ask me for my uh, my feedback on people. And then he kind of repeated that day two and day three. And finally, we started talking, but this guy doesn't say much. So for me to give him a chance to have the microphone is really going to be fun to see if he, see if you answered more than one word answers, Alan. So do you remember that event in South Africa? Oh, I certainly do, because that, that was one of the first events we had in the region in leadership or, or development. And we happened to be in, in South Africa already as a um, CEO team. And at the same time, you were running that training for these, um, I think it was called NLI. That's right. Yeah. New Leader Institute. That's right. And so we had managers that were relatively new in their role and we wanted to um, run this training and development so it was the first one and I was certainly there because I was interested in them as people but more importantly looking for potential and probably where that originated from is that I had a leader when I first started before BMW who took me through a Dale Carnegie course Uh, it was a 14-week course At the end of the course, you had this ceremony where you got presented and it was a a night after after hours, I think, ran from um, seven till nine of a night. So I did it part-time, 14 weeks. But this um, CEO actually turned up for that closing event Um, and and that impressed me because he had his own family, had seven children, would you believe? But he took the time to turn up and show interest in how I developed out of it. So that probably stuck in my mind. So that's probably where I learned the, the, the process of being involved, showing interest. But it was more particularly I, I was looking for the, for the talent. And these were young managers 
I knew the region was going to grow, so where were we going to get talent? And the, the main area we're going to get them from was within, but we had to train and develop, and that's what you did and, and was very successful. If I look back of who the participants in that original NLI, I think there's probably eight to ten of them that have gone on to become either CEOs in their own right within BMW or outside BMW or leading big teams. Yeah. It had an impact in that respect. So it was more about interested in who they were, where they came from, and the fact that um, that these were potentials. It just occurred to me, you've always obsessed about, you know, talent and finding talent and developing talent. You've been fixated on that since I first met you. And I, I didn't, I appreciate you telling me that story about the boss that you had that came to your Dale Carnegie graduation ceremony. And you're right, the, um, the showing genuine interest in your people by attending something like that really sends a signal because uh, most of these folks recognize how precious is your time. And for you to invest that in them when you didn't have to is, is really special. I think just coming back, the significant thing about that, Ed, was that he had his own family, seven children. So why would you take the time to go and after hours, after work and come to this event? But that stood out as as an impressive exercise from his behalf. So that stood with me in, in many respects about investing in the people, genuine, genuine care. How many people do you think we put through NLI in the Australasia region from 2005 until 2015? I'd say there'd be at least a couple of hundred over that period of time. And as I say, many of them have gone on to greater success. And I know personally that this one of a couple of people attended had a big impact. One guy in particular said to me that this really showed him what leadership was about. And he's a CEO now. He had a significant impact. He remembers it because also from your perspective, Um, one of the things that stood out for him was it was a challenging event. In other words, you challenged them, they challenged back, the group interacted very well, and that impressed him, that that ability to learn to challenge, but also um, the cohesiveness of the group, the, the multicultural group. We had participants from each of the markets. So at that time, we had six countries. So we had people from Japan, we had people from Korea, South Africa, Australia and and New Zealand and a number of those have gone on to be very successful in their own right. So it was was important to hold that but give them that foundation training. I'll admit some vulnerability here to the audience. The first session we did was in Bangkok the year before and uh, our friend Marcus Helfrich was the gentleman who sponsored that. Yes, yes. I don't know if I ever told you this story, but Marcus was sitting uh, to the side auditing and watching what was going on. And we had the classroom set up in a square, a rectangle. And we had people there from, um, I believe, and we'll just say it, we had obviously Thailand, we had Malaysia, we had Korea, we had Japan, we had the, the gals from South Africa, Shirlene and Ursula probably. And so there were roughly 20, 25 people in the room. And Marcus, at the end of the day, I said, what did you think? And he said, well, I was a little concerned at the beginning because everybody was sitting by country. 
And I never even thought about asking people to mix up or move around. And I didn't really think about the cultural differences between the countries. I just started running the NLI as I would normally run it. Exactly. And I never thought about presenting what we presented in any way differently because of the cultural diversity that we had represented in the room and, and nobody from North America. So that leads me to the question about that was ignorance on my part. But I'm wondering, as you've been so involved with so many different cultures in your career, as many as anybody that I know, do you do anything different as a leader because of cultural differences? No, when I say no, there are definitely cultural differences in, in each of the Asian countries, and you should be aware of those. But in terms of the leadership and the management of those companies, particularly the leadership is is not different. But But I'll go back, where did that learning came from? Because that came from the fact that the Australian business, we from day one had a multicultural organisation. Right. That happened. That's Australia. We had a multicultural organisation. We had diversity in culture. We had diversity in, in male and female. So that's what we grew up with. So it was a bit of a natural thing that happened. But coming back to your question on leadership and leading in those markets, no, it's it's, it's very similar. You, you want a leader that leads the people and genuine care of the people. I wrote down a couple of words that I think of when I think of you, Alan, and, and one was a gentleman. I'm going to come back to that. If I forget at the end of our time together, I would ask you to say, hey, what did you want to say about gentlemen? So I want to talk about that. Visionary. You are definitely a visionary. You see things that either are visible that others don't see, or you see something that's not even visible to potentially to others, but you can see the future of what it could be and create a, an urgency to go towards that. Do you think that's innate or do you think you develop that capacity to see the future of what things could or should be? I think it's a learned skill over time. I read a lot. I studied a lot in terms of studying different organisation and different successes. As, as you know, I study very closely um, Australian rules football, which is different than what, what you're familiar with in the US. But that taught me about teams, that taught me about coaching, that taught me about vision and what was possible. But as I say, I was lucky in many respects in BMW that I had some great experiences. I belonged to a group which was a process re-engineering group, which meant that we met as a group. There was, I think there was eight of us in the group from different countries, but we met every two months for two weeks and we were in a different market. So that opened my eyes as to what was working, what wasn't working. But also then I had the opportunity to do some great courses through BMW, which opened my mind to what's possible, what was potentially available. We ended up as part of that process re-engineering group, visiting Michael Hammer, who was a guru of process re-engineering at MIT. I then attended some great courses and one of the greatest courses I attended was in Boston and was run by Hammer, but he had a guest list including Jack Welsh. And the leadership course was leading in turbulent times. So I was going there really to listen to Welsh because I read a lot about Welsh, you know, straight right. gut, and he was well recognised at the time as one of the best leaders. But disappointingly, he, he didn't impress me when he presented. And the most standout Part of that exercise was he was interviewed by Michael Hammer. But the standout guy in that event was a guy called Don Soderquist. Don Soderquist was the CFO for Walmart. 
And I didn't know a lot about Walmart, but Don Soderquist had no notes, no PowerPoint. He just walked the stage and he told stories about Walmart. Yeah. That led me to then, I picked up the book on Walmart. I've still got it and I've still got it marked all these pages and it's called The the Walmart Decade, how a new generation of leaders turned Sam Walton's legacy into the world's number one company. So that inspired me in another way. Well, here's a huge organisation, but look at what one leader did to develop a culture and inspire the people. So that reinforced some of my learnings. He was a visionary as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So to come back to your question, I think I learned it over time to have a vision. And the vision was important in a number of markets to inspire the people. Where are we going? Give them, give them a roadmap. Thank you, Alan. You're listening to the Ed Epley Experience. Email Ed now with your questions for today's guest to podcast at theepleygroup.com. In his book, Let's Be Clear, Six Disciplines of Focused Management Pros, author Ed Epley breaks down key practices of professional management, how to implement them, and why it matters. Purchase your copy on Amazon.com today. Develop your competitive edge for the future while building a sustainable and thriving business. Another one of your traits is loyalty. I have never been around anybody who's been more loyal to people once they're on your team. You were just so completely loyal to that person in the belief that they are going to be successful and you're going to do whatever you have to to help them be successful. And you and I have even had a conversation. If you were to have a flaw or a fault, it's probably sometimes being loyal to some people that you probably shouldn't have been longer than you should have, I guess is the way to say. Was that learned? Or is that is that part of your DNA? No, I think I think that was learned as well from experience. I, I had very good bosses in the past, if I use that term, or leaders that gave me a lot of loyalty. Um, when I first joined at BMW, um, there was a great CEO that showed a lot of loyalty to his people. It was tough. He was very tough, but he showed a lot of loyalty. He gave you a lot of experiences. I stuffed up a few times, but he was still very loyal. So in that respect, I learned it from him. But equally, I think your point is right. On the other side, I probably didn't move quick enough when I gave people a chance, but then I needed to move quicker looking back to make changes when they weren't performing or or where the job was too big. Or the job outgrew them, right? It it wasn't initially, it, it just outgrew them later, yeah. Yeah, which I think you, you know this term well, the Peters principle, you promote them beyond their capability. Yeah. You should give them the chance to perform, but if it becomes too big, then make the move to get them out. And that's probably in, in hindsight where I didn't move quick enough on some occasions. I'm being cautious with our time, but I've got so many questions I want to ask you. And one that strikes me is thinking about China and your opening up that market and the complexity of it and the joint ventures and all that kind of stuff. How that was a really, really once in a lifetime kind of opportunity to do that in a market of that size. What stands out to you about that whole journey of China and opening up that market? 
Well, I think, as you said, the, the complexity of it, it was navigating through the rules and regulations. It took us five years to get a license, but it was a real test of, I, I use the word patience and persistence. Yeah. Patient to, you know, as I say, stay in the journey to get this license, persistence to want to get it. Once again, I was lucky that, that I put in a great leader from the start who you know very well. Extremely talented ex-Ivy League, but he had to go through some really tough times. And those were extraordinary tough times. And I didn't see them in any other market, but he learned, he grew, and I had to coach in a different way there. Um, him as a leader, but he innovated in a way that no one else would have. Yeah, I agree with you. And we started the business, wouldn't you believe that we suddenly had these what they call quotas put on us? In other words, the market was growing too big. So this was the regulator trying to slow the growth. So we, we were one of the last into, into the market. So we five years to get a license and then suddenly you, you're ready to go and, and you were restricted in your lending. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I remember we'd staffed up for two or three times the volume of growth that he was allowed to go after. It was like, what do we do with all these people all dressed up and no place to go? Yeah, but he innovated because we then developed a, what he called a co-lending model to yep. to shift some of the business into another uh, lender, which was innovation, really innovation. So you had to innovate, you had to, but equally what, what he did was inspire the people. Yeah. Created some new concepts, lunch and learn, which was educating the people in an environment you know, once a week to get them to understand the business. I mean, that market now is, is the biggest market for financial services in the world. So it grew from, and I think this, yeah, this year will be 10 years since we established um, China, but I love that experience, but had great, great joy in seeing that success. But equally, Russia and India. Yeah. Well, I had the RIC market, so I didn't have Brazil, but it was different um, form of challenge, but exciting to see those markets succeed. Yeah. And as you know, it was a once in a lifetime. It'll never happen yeah. again. To happen three, was say, not the brick, but the RIC, Russia, India, and China, was an amazing experience. I, uh, I didn't realize at the time. I just knew it was daunting. And, and, you know, I had no responsibility for anything other than helping you develop the people. But I knew it was daunting what was being asked of all those people in terms of figuring out, you know, developing processes and systems that could work in those markets uh, because they are so unique and so different and uh, and each one very, very complex. Um, w one of the things uh, that the audience may or may not know is I'm, I'm a big fan of behavioral finance and uh, behavioral economics. And as a result of that, I got exposed to an assessment called Perth Leadership. And Dr. Ted Prince is the author of that uh, assessment, a suite of assessments that helps you identify behaviors that uh, you possess and, and, and cognitive biases or filters that you have in your mind that, that really affect what you do and how you see risk and opportunity, and then understand how that affects the financial results of the business. And Alan, you very early on embraced that. So when I talked to you about it, it was not if we should do it, it was just how fast and what, you know, what would be the, the goal. And, and so we started doing that. And I'm, I'm curious today what you've took away from that whole experience. You're a bit of a unicorn in how you're hardwired versus how you behave. And so I'm just interested about where you are today and you're thinking about behavioral finance. 
I think it was a fantastic concept and and we we had some challenging discussions about doing that because obviously it required investment. Yep. I remember the discussion. We, we had a CEO get together and was in Bangkok and I put to the group, should we do this? It's going to take an investment of a number of dollars and it was a heated discussion. But in the end, we agreed to do it. And that was pleasing because it was investment into the potential, again, identifying the potential of the people, but also identifying what was possible. And we had some great experiences. And and if you remember, we we had some young talent that we identified that we would not have identified otherwise. Yeah. And we had some great outcomes from doing that. So that was the highlight for me to see this concept read about it in theory, put it into practice, and then see the outcome. And the, the, the staggering outcome was some of the successes we had in, in our biggest market, which was China. Yeah. And, and, and innovation in another way. Yeah, and, and for, other, for our audience, uh, there's a disproportionate few people who have the capacity to think and behave in a way that produces high gross margin ideas or products or services. And so what we embarked on with Alan and his CEOs was testing a very large group of people, several hundred, as I recall, um, for, for their capacity to innovate. And then also giving them permission to innovate in an organization. All large organizations tend to weed out highly innovative people <laughs> because they, they're hard to manage. And, um, and they generally w- will take a path of least resistance. If I'm a highly innovative individual, I'm probably not going to put up with all the rules and regulations. And so I'm going to go find somewhere else where I can act on my ideas. So it was really interesting how Dr. Prince uh, worked with you to figure out a way to give them permission to do this innovation without it raising too many red flags too early. Exactly. But the highlight to me, as I say, was then identifying this talent that we wouldn't have otherwise identified and giving giving them the freedom to try things and and some of those things definitely worked which we wouldn't have otherwise had the opportunity to to see um let's move off of that and since we've kind of hit that pretty hard i'm, I'm curious about you've had the opportunity in fact i think since you're uh retirement from from bmw you've spent a huge amount of time coaching even more than you already did is there one thing that you think is disproportionately important for somebody who's an executive or manager or leader? If, if, they're, if you were going to say, I don't care what you do, but if, if you don't do anything else, you better do this. Or maybe in the negative, you better not do this. Is, is there one thing that you feel like is really crucial for executives to be successful in today's world? I, th- I think it's all about the people, Ed, as, as you'd expect. Get your team right. And, and when I say team right, Ideally, get a diverse team, diverse team of, of experience, diverse team of, of talent, and, and definitely have a very strong balance of females in that. Allow them to, to do their job, get out of their way, but, but also challenge them, challenge them to, to improve. And, and don't, be, don't be afraid to challenge them if, if they are underperforming or, or they can do better. So, but equally, as we discussed, if, if, if they're not working out, move them. So take that decision quick uh, and because we all procrastinate about that, what we discussed, but, but definitely. We, we, we do. Yeah. We do. We, we, we never, you, you never generally hear 
executives say, uh, I move too quickly on that individual. It's always, a, it's always too long. But it's get the team right, get the diversity in the team, but, but coach them, act as a coach rather than you have all the answers. Talk to me about when you consciously started to work on the diversity, especially in terms of male and female on your teams. Was that always there or was there a moment in time where the switch flipped for you and you said, I'm going to really work with and trying to identify the female talent that we have? Well, I mentioned that that we were we were fortunate that we had a, a diversity in culture. We had a diversity in females in Australia, so it came in some ways natural. We had some great managers that were re- leading some big teams, female managers, and and the standout learning from the female managers, they executed much better than the males. One more time, say that again. They executed, but they also multitask because. A lot of these were ladies with children, with families, so they had to, to balance, but, but that, that came through as a standout. So when I took over at the region, I was lucky that I had the opportunity to put in a CEO in, into Russia as a female. I, we had a change in South Africa, and then we, we put in a female in South Africa. I then had two exceptionally talented EAs. They taught me... Also, they covered some of my blind spots, but they also did some things that were impressive. So they were female, young, talented ladies that now have gone on to be very successful HR managers in their own right, with families, with children. And so that that's where it came from. Give them the opportunity, um, let them get more involved. But we needed we needed that diversity. That's that was the, the critical point, I think. Did you run into much pushback from uh, headquarters about your choices on using women in, in some of these critical positions? Not really, because the lady that was head of HR, um, you mentioned Marcus earlier, his boss was a very successful lady in BMW, very successful. She was one of the first um, female senior executives in BMW. So she was head of HR for financial services. So she fully supported naturally the development of uh, the female talent. And she she supported me personally in, in many ways in, in making sure that happened. But no, not, not, not particularly. It was, was about identifying the, the right person, the right time. But it was female, definitely got very strong support from from her, but also from the CEO at the time, George Bow, and then then Triple E, Triple E, yeah, they're both very strong supporters of female development. I think that's great. Well, it certainly was a lesson for me, and um, as you said, the the capacity to execute, we we can never have too much of that. And so, if we can find an individual who can um, more likely be able to get things executed, we certainly want them on our team. And, and if you go back to that original training in South Africa, one of those ladies out of that ended up being a CEO in, in one of the markets. And, yeah. and, and and the lady that's now the uh, running the region that I used to run is a female who used to work for us, came out of Australia. So yep. Yep. give them the opportunity and see uh, and let them go and they'll prove you that they'll, they'll deliver. 
Alan, um, I need to wrap up because of our time constraints. I, I don't think this will be our only time having this conversation, though. I think we're going to have you back for some more more targeted discussion. I, I wanted to pay you the the honor, though, of giving you a chance to share some of your thoughts because you've had such a big impact on me. Um, I want to I want to come back to my word gentleman. A gentleman, ladies and gentlemen, I heard this definition. I forget it was an English writer uh, who it was, but he said a gentleman is someone who has few vices, but will let you have yours. <laughs> if I've ever met somebody who is a gentleman of that type, it's Mr. Alan Crook. So, Alan, thank you for being with us today. I want to remind our audience that if you want to find out more about professional management and leadership, just go to my website, the Epley Group. That's E-P-P-L-E-Y, the Epley Group, all one word dot com. Uh, my book, Let's Be Clear, is there, along with uh, our assessment that you can take to find out which uh, areas professional management or organizational health may be more of an opportunity for you than the other. And uh, we, are, we will welcome you back to our next uh, podcast, uh, which will be on next week. So with that, Alan, any final comments? We can wrap up and get you uh, back to your gardening or whatever. I, it, it's Thursday, so you're not gardening today. That was yesterday. No, no, no. actually, um, at, at meeting some people to, to, to do some coaching sessions. But but thanks for having me on. And, and thanks also for what you did over the years to help us succeed in, in many of these markets. Your training, your leadership, your coaching of many of the successful managers that we developed were, was instrumental in our success as well. And it was great to have you as, as a part of our journey of, of um, success in, in the Asia-Pacific region. Thank you, Alan. You're a good friend. You're a great leader. Uh, give our uh, love to Sue, and we'll look forward to seeing you and, and our audience uh, very, very soon. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Thanks, Ed. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Ed Epley Experience. For more information on building a more sustainable, smarter, and healthier business, visit www.theepleygroup.com for resources, tips, and Ed's latest blogs. That's theepleygroup.com. Plus, take a free assessment at theepleygroup.com slash assessment to find out how you measure up as a highly skilled and accomplished manager and where to focus on improving your skills.